I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for this episode of my podcast. A few months ago, I met for the first time a quite phenomenal composer, and I was thrilled when he readily agreed to be interviewed for A Stick With A Point. I'm very proud of this one, and I learned so much about both the urge to compose and the creative process involved. I hope you enjoy it. I'm delighted that my guest today is the celebrated composer, Sir James McMillan. James, welcome to A Stick With A Point. Hello, it's great to be with you. Thanks, James. Now, I know that you're very active as both a conductor and a composer, um, I'm going to forgive you the former, and uh, let's explore the latter if that's if that's good with you. So, first up, I'd really like to know what was your initial impetus to compose. Well, I think for me it began almost the first day I was handed uh, an instrument as a little boy, uh, in that the desire to make music of my own was almost simultaneously simultaneous with uh, being handed a, a little plastic recorder, as most British school kids uh, experienced back in the 60s and 70s. And um, I knew within a few days that, that I wanted to not just play this instrument, but actually create my own sounds for it. I didn't have the notation at that stage, obviously. I didn't know what it would mean in future life. Um, but certainly something, a light went on as soon as I was given that little little recorder. And is that something that, that you were able to rapidly progress or, or um, was it something that was just sort of festering away until people recognised it and helped you? Um, well, my, my mother uh, used to talk to me a lot about composers, uh, the composers that she loved uh, in the early days. She had played the piano a little bit when she was a, a girl, uh, and and actually, it, the house was full of uh, some of her music that she had practiced uh, at that time. I, 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 I remember coming across some Beethoven sonatas and some piano music by Chopin and so on. Uh, and uh, she, uh, there was something about the way she talked to me about the composers that she loved that, that uh, seemed to grip my attention. And uh, I began to realise that uh, I had a great interest in uh, composers of classical music, and you know, I I I, I was avid in getting myself my my first LPs, uh, Haydn, Beethoven sonatas, Haydn trumpet concerto because I was a trumpeter very quickly, and uh, and so on. And and I, I remember even as a child reading the little Ladybird book about Ladybird books about the lives of composers. And it wasn't long after that that I realised that there were still people doing it today, as it were, uh, a few hundred miles down the road. There was a very important composer uh, writing and making a name for himself, Benjamin Britten. And uh, I got very interested in the fact that there were uh, people like him doing it. And I, 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 I lot watched and listened to see what he was up to and, and, and also composers nearer at home in Scotland. I, I got fascinated by that. Now, you made a great leap there from picking up a recorder to playing the trumpet 
to talking about Benjamin Britten. Are you, like me, a product of the state education system, you know, and, and that they, they used to come around and um, give us instruments to, to play and, and help develop that way and get into bands and orchestras? Was that the same for you? Very much so. Uh, I went to the local schools in Ayrshire, and uh, if it hadn't been for the peripatetic music teacher coming in one day and handing out instruments, this wouldn't have happened. And um, my grandfather, who, who was a coal miner, uh, and like many coal miners in places like Ayrshire and Fife and West Lothian, played in uh, brass bands uh, when he was younger, and he got me my first cornet uh, when I was about 10, and it, took, it started taking me to band rehearsals and so on. Um, and you know, the, the, the music making at school and indeed the tuition at school uh, the state schools that I went to was very, very important, uh, and it set set me up nicely. Do you think that was some sort of golden age? Well, I think that, I think you might be right. I mean, especially people from my kind of background, uh, and especially in the brass world, uh, if you look at the makeup of the brass sections in British orchestras in the seventies and eighties, for example, seventies, eighties, and nineties, it was people like John Wallace. Um, who went on to be principal at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, and and people and men men and women like him who had come from the coal fields, come from the Fife coal fields in the case of John's uh, uh, case. Um, so there were there obviously there was a lot of music making in these working class communities um, that was doing a, a lot of good for uh, these poor kids. I mean, there was no money in, in, in these backgrounds and the, these communities, um, but there was, they were getting enough uh, tuition and encouragement in their communities, in their families, in their schools to go to the top of their profession. And uh, for a while, it, it was people like that who were populating the brass sections and, and orchestras. That's begun to change though in Britain. Um, and it's slightly worrying in that you tend to find the orchestras now populated by people who uh, had been to, through private education. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but it does mean that the, perhaps the heyday, the golden age of uh, ordinary kids coming through ordinary schools and making it into the profession may have gone. We may have to sort of rethink, double back and start building again for those kind of communities. Yeah, well, I love the way you're thinking there, and I hope there is some sort of redressing of the of the change that's gone on in the last ten to twenty years, which has diminished the role of of music education in um, in the state schools dramatically. There, I had a very similar background. Uh, both of my grandfathers were coal miners, and um, although none of them played um, brass instruments, uh, there was a musical interest that came through. So that, that that's fascinating. I'm sure there are many people um, had that as the their start in in their musical lives, but playing an instrument is is one thing. But composing, I mean, you know, that's a bit of a tangent, isn't it? I mean, where where were your supporters when you were um, an adolescent, let's say? Um, well, uh, the aforesaid, uh, aforementioned grandfather uh, was a very big musical presence in my life, and he's he's he will always encourage me in whatever I did musically. And he also talked about the composers he loved because a lot of these men um, were in love with music. They had a very hard physical uh, working life, but they lived for music when they come out from the mines. They would play in the bands, but also sing in the local church choirs and so on. So he, he knew a lot of music and a lot of different kinds of music as well. 
Um, so I got a lot of encouragement from uh, parents and grandparents uh, and, and school teachers, especially at secondary school, music, music teachers especially were wonderful. One in, one in particular uh, at my old secondary school who uh, formed a choir at school and um, got us all singing and, and the kind of music he got us all singing and we were the sons and daughters of coal miners and farmers in Ayrshire uh, and, and not used to singing uh, motets and masses by Palestrina and William Byrd and so on but that's the music that um, he introduced us to and it was a magical world and uh, the experience has lived with me ever since. I still love that music and I still write a lot for choir. Yes, I've noticed that your your catalogue is absolutely huge for um, for for choral works and vocal works. And uh, does a lot of the inspiration for that come from your 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 strong religious faith? Uh, I would say a, a lot of it. Yes, I suppose uh, uh, I've always been intrigued as to how uh, this kind of music worked for uh, religious rituals, uh, as in liturgy. Uh, and it was the, the, the celebration of the mass and so on, and, and where the, the various mass settings from the past and the motet settings fitted in with uh, religious life. Um, and and I, I, I do write for liturgy. I get asked a lot by church choirs and church organisations, Catholic, Anglican, and many others, uh, to write music for their choirs. And, and that's music that will be used uh, for prayer, as it were. Um, and, and it, it might be more unusual now than, than before to find composers uh, having that double life, you know, having a life in the secular world, uh, writing for, the, for concerts, uh, the concert world, but also having this other life, uh, writing music for liturgy. I mean, for, for, for centuries, that's, they did that anyway. They had, they had that double life. But may, may, maybe the, the two things have, have separated and gone their different ways in recent years. Uh, I do find it interesting enough, I find um, different conversations to be had depending on the kind of people I'm speaking with. Some, some of them share the, the church background uh, and maybe are, are less au fait with the concert world and vice versa. I find a lot of people in the concert world, especially in the world of orchestras, um, who, who don't know who uh, Victoria was. Uh, and I have to explain uh, a little bit about Victoria's music or um, Robert Carver's music. I've had some very interesting conversations with really quite famous and respected musicians uh, who are hearing these names for the f first time. Wow, that's, um, that's really quite strange, but it is indicative of how the musical uh, profession um, goes on, on a very windy route. Uh, so the actual routine you have of composing if there is a routine do you do you get up in the morning and, and say to yourself i've got to write 20 bars today or this morning or i've got to write 100 bars or i will compose for three hours or is it how the muse takes you yes it, it's, it's the latter really it's it's uh, just being prepared to go with the flow sometimes there's nothing there and i've got to find something else to do uh, but that something else can sometimes feed into the inspiration in some way. Just getting yourself organised and can clear the clear the mind and make you more ready uh, to write music. Uh, on the other hand, you can get into a kind of tread uh, where uh, one day's work leads quite naturally to and subsequently to what will develop the next day. Um, no, no day is the same for me. Sometimes I can be on a bit of a 
a journey with a piece, piece of music. Other times it can feel as if there's nothing there uh, and, and then a little something germinates quite um, unexpectedly. Hmm. I find that very interesting because uh, I have spoken with some composers, very, very wonderful composers as well, who um, do actually have to have the discipline of saying between 10 and 1, I will compose. And that's how they do that. But I, I'm very um, much in line with what you're describing to, to go away and do something else. You know, if I've got to study a score and or something like that that requires uh, me to use what creativity and I have in my own mind, um, and I'm just not up for it, I go and, I go and have a long drive, or I go and rake leaves, or something like that, and a total distraction, and then the motivation, inspiration, whatever, to to get involved in something more important comes along. Is that what happens to you? It does, yes, absolutely. Even if it's just uh, wandering out of the house and wandering wandering about, I live in the out in the countryside now here in North Ayrshire. It's actually very conducive to uh, work like mine. And um, there's some wonderful walks uh, round about. Um, it's quite a beautiful part of Scotland, to be honest, uh, in, the, in the lowlands. Uh, my study looks out, out onto the islands of Arran and oh, wow. the island of Cumbria. Hmm. And uh, so I've got no excuses. Uh, I, can, I can absorb the beauty of the, the place I live in. Right, so, so that's good. I love that. It's not so much an easy distraction that keeps you away from work. It's the inspiration that drives you to work. I, I think that's tremendous. Um, talking about Scotland and the beauty of Scotland in so many areas, I found a, a quote of yours in the, the frontispiece of um, the score for the confession of Isabel Gowrie, which reads that you tried to capture the soul of Scotland in music. Um Oh, yeah, you're, you're laughing there, but I think that's a wonderful statement. Um, is that something that's central to your creativity as well, your, your Scottish roots? Well, it's a very bold claim to have made uh, as a young composer <laughs> to try to capture the, the essence or the character of, of a country or a people. Uh, but to be honest, um, I, 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 it may have been a very conscious thing, a self-conscious thing at the time that I was wanted to do that. Um, uh, and many people can't hear any folk music as such in a piece like The Confession of Visible Gaudi. But I was uh, saturated in, in folk music in, uh, in, my, in my young days. And I used to play a lot of folk music. I used to sing a lot of folk songs, Scottish and Irish stuff. I, I played in a folk band and played around about the folk clubs and the pubs in the west of Scotland. So um, I, I was really engaged with uh, the vernacular music of Scotland, as it were. And... Um, well, that's an old story, of course. Composers through the ages and in many different countries have engaged with their own music, uh, with the traditional music of their own country, and sometimes other countries. Um, so there's nothing new there. Uh, but I think there was a, a time when many Scottish composers were trying to re-engage with the tradition, and, um, it, and, and it found its way into the, the, their own music, the, the, the arts music, as it were. Mm. What does it mean, though, to, to, to what does it mean in purely musical terms? Well, I think many people, if, if, if pushed, would say Scottish music has uh, drones and uh, Scottish music has um, lots of little ornaments and modalities, um, Gaelic music especially, music for Gaelic song has this kind of pentatonic feel to it. Uh, so there's the modality, there's ornamentation, and there's the bagpipe drones. 
And I think, to be honest, what, if you start looking closely at a score like the Confession of Visible Gaudi, you can see evidence of all those and more. So they're the musical uh, influences of Scotland. Um, the more apparent influences to do with the, the beauty of the country, the quality of the of the life, the, the, the style of life, the nature of the people, do those aspects uh, drive you at all? Well, I think they, they are probably more subconscious mm. inspirations or influences compared to the, the nitty-gritty um, uh, decisions about about musical parameters. Uh, when you're talking about drones and modalities and ornamentation, you've got something tangible as a musician to focus on. But the other things, uh, uh, you know, they're in the ether, as it were, for all artists. And you sometimes pick something up subconsciously, unconsciously uh, about one's environment. And, and certainly I think that has gone gone on uh, through the through the centuries for, for many different kinds of composers. Mm, surely, surely. Uh, on another practical level, I'm always intrigued by, by composers these days with this question, which is, are you a paper and pencil man or do you work at a computer? Paper and pencil, uh, completely. I've kind of missed out on the whole computer revolution. Um, and sometimes I regret that uh, because my computer skills are not very good. Um, and I just don't know how to operate all these uh, um, notation systems like Sibelius and so on. I feel that is a, something I've missed out on, but I just don't have the mind to teach myself. So it means that uh, I, I use pencil, I use pen, I submit pen scores to my publishers. Uh, but they've got to then uh, farm the scores out to someone who they, will then computer set it. So maybe, maybe they maybe they would prefer it if I had learned these skills earlier, but it's too far gone for that. I do notice, though, with, with young composers that uh, it's more than just notation uh, that's involved in these systems. That sometimes, because of the playback, facilities that these uh, com computers have that they will, they will they, you, you can use it like a, a kind of tape recorder or even a piano or some, something. So it kind of plays back a version of your music to you and you can make shortcuts. Um, and I sometimes worry that uh, these are, are not beneficial and not helpful uh, if they're relying too much on technology. And I tell them that, it says that, you know, uh, technology is good if you can make it work especially when it comes to self-publishing, for example. But if it's getting in the way of the actual invention and the creativity, it might be time to rethink just how much one relies on technology. In the same way, it has to be said that if a composer relies too much on a piano, um, it can skew uh, an understanding, skew, skew the feel that a composer has for the music he's writing. I mean, if I'm writing an orchestral piece or indeed a choral piece, the last thing I need in my head is the sound of a piano. Um, it just gets in the way. And so you've got to rely on one's imagination, one's uh, inner ear, uh, and write in silence. I, I, I tell students that, that it's important to um, throw away uh, all the artificial help and rely on the imagination itself. And that can sometimes be frightening. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can never check your 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 
your your workings. I, I do that, of course, but but the necessary working, working the counterpoint, getting the the harmonies to work, what, getting the the colours to work, and the, and so on, has to be done in in here or in the soul somewhere, uh, and and don't rely too much on any extraneous help. Mm. Oh, I think that's a lovely answer. Um, I also wonder as well if the actual uh, activity of, of holding a pencil and looking at a blank piece of paper, piece of paper with sets of lines on it, let's say, um, whether that is cause for inspiration as well, the capacity to doodle with a pencil and to, and to, uh, and to have little things dotted all over the place. I'm sure it could be done on a computer, but uh, like you, I don't relish the idea of using a tablet with scores on for performances. Um, I love the tactile feel of the paper, and it's served much greater people than me well for hundreds of years. Um, and that's always been a, a driving force for me to, to actually have the physicality in front of me. And, and you're creating it as you go along, rather than having it saved to some sort of memory bank somewhere. You can you can shuffle yeah. those bits of papers, you can crumple them up and throw them at the wall if you like. You can do what Elgar did, which is just print the pages, oh, sorry, pick up the pages and pin them all around your study and walk around and 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 look at them that way. Much more inspiration with with a pencil and paper. Oh, I think so. I think you, your use of the word tactile is, is the key here. There's a, there's a physical connection uh, between brain and hand uh, in the making of music that is, is so vital. Um, I would say, though, that my only um, concession to modern technology is that I have a um, an electronic pencil sharpener. Okay. <laughs> 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 aye, aye, aye. Now, James, can you offer any insight as to, as to what you think um, a composer today should do to gauge whether they've been successful or not? And, um, and does it really matter? Well, uh, in the scheme of things, uh, there, are, there are different um, evaluations of success. There's popular success, critical success which is, is always lovely to get that kind of affirmation from an audience and, or, or from someone who knows what they're talking about. Uh, I mean, I people say they never read the reviews, but actually sometimes it can be very helpful. Even, even bad reviews uh, can be uh, strangely or paradoxically helpful, especially in your younger years, although that's, that's probably, it's probably more painful for a, a younger musician to read bad reviews. But, you know, a, a lot of this... Uh, is, is a kind of analysis of what you are as a musician, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, you can take it on board. And if things aren't right, things aren't going well, um, sometimes a critical response can be the most helpful thing. Um, but it, it, success, for me, in the end, uh, 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 has to be a kind of auto-generated thing. It's, it's what I regard myself as, as, uh, as successful. Um, and deep in your own soul, you know what has worked and what hasn't. Uh, deep in your own soul, you know the pieces that where you've fulfilled uh, one's own promise, where one has achieved something that one hoped to achieve or not. 
and uh, that little itch uh, is is something that points you in the direction of success uh, or various um, various grades of success. Uh, and do you write mainly to commission? Mostly, yes. But it's important, I think, that um, I can get, I get the commission right in the sense that you know. Um, I would never, I would never be in a position. I never physically, I, I couldn't possibly ever be in a position of physically writing a piece of music I didn't want to write. I just couldn't do it. So there has to be a bit of discussion um, with uh, the people who want to commission me as to what I want to do, uh, so that I have an input into that. Um, and there's some sometimes I, I commissions come along and I'm just not ready, uh, one way or another, or have maybe I've made a decision that I've, I can't do that kind of piece again. Uh, for example, I think my operatic days are over. Uh, so I have some interesting conversations sometimes saying that it's not in me in, anymore. I don't think it is in me. Uh, so maybe uh, the conversation can develop onto something that, uh, that, I'm, that, that I do want to write. Can you elaborate on that? Is, is writing an opera... Seeing it through its production and and launch is that really stressful or something? Is it something you don't want to be involved uh, in? It's partly stressful. I've never felt completely at ease in the way that the opera world works. I suppose that that's that's part of it. But also, what is regarded as uh, good or desirable uh, in modern operatic terms, and it's different from country to country. Uh, continent to continent just doesn't fit with what I think of as as my operatic um, inclinations. Uh, consequently, I think I'm regarded as quite an old-fashioned composer when it comes to opera, and and that's not what the opera world wants. They're continually wanting to be fashionable uh, and and to appeal beyond the the fuddy-duddy world of 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 standard opera. And I, I just I don't I don't have that kind of trendy trendiness in me I'm afraid I, I want to write uh, uh, when it came to operas I've written a few but they tend to be quite old-fashioned narrative uh, dramatic in a 19th century sense and um, it just I, I realised it wasn't ticking modern boxes mm -hmm. So that said what do you feel the role is for for a composer any composer in the 21st century? Well, these, these things are changing all the time and actually changing quite rapidly. In my lifetime, um, the experience of um, writing music has changed. The experience of studying music seems to be changing. Um, I, I look at the younger generation today, the people that I meet in universities and colleges, and they do have a different concept, perhaps, of what they want to do. Uh, compared to me, uh, I mean, I, I remember being a, a young student composer in the 70s and 80s. For example, um, uh, there, there was no big interest in cho choral music, for example, new, new choral music. And um, it's partly to do with modernism being a fairly instrumental uh, ethos. Um, the, 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 the modern ethos, the modernist ethos, is to write virtuosic music and complex music for ensembles and orchestras and so on. Uh, I, I love writing for ensembles and orchestras, but the, um, the, it, it did mean that for a while, perhaps, the, 
a lot of people took their eyes off the ball when it came to choral music. And and what I didn't predict, what, what I couldn't see happening was that the, the rise of these wonderful new choirs, especially in the United Kingdom, has suddenly taken off as a major aspect of our music making. Uh, who, who in the 70s and 80s could have predicted the importance that the uh, groups like the, the 16 or Tenebrae or Polyphony, Voces 8, there's incredible young groups coming, uh, virtuosic groups that are coming forward that are singing old music and new music. And uh, it seems to be that those, those, those choirs who specialised in pre-Baroque music a lot of the time uh, also saw a natural counterpart for that music in the work of the living composer. So I'm finding, I'm finding um, lots of composers now thinking about writing choral music, whereas their counterparts, even myself included uh, as a young composer, would never really have considered it as seriously as, 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 as it now is. So whereas a few minutes ago we were talking pessimistically about the state of music education in the UK in particular, it sounds like you've got cause to um, be optimistic, you feel, about the future of music in, in so many ways, particularly through choral music. Yes, and not just choral music. Uh, I think, I mean, people have been talking about the demise of classical music for... Ever. Um, over <laughs> over 100 years now, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in the 1930s, uh, Theodore Adorno, uh, the, the cultural critic and composer, actually, was talking about the, the death of classical music. And what he meant by that, or what he was referring to, uh, strangely, looking back at it, was the advent of the the phonogram and the record player and the, the radio. Um, and and it's odd, looking back, thinking that he could be so pessimistic because of these things, because in actual fact, they've, they've proved to be a great friend of classical music. It's disseminated this music throughout the world. Um, and you know, there's always there are always Jeremiah's in classical music saying it's all going to stop, so the audiences are getting too old. Um, they're going to die out, and it hasn't happened. Well, I mean, of course it not. It won't. It won't happen because audiences have always been old for classical music, and it's because they come to this sort of music perhaps at a certain stage of their lives. And what happens to old people? Well, they replenish themselves, don't they? And yeah. uh, and and that's where the core audience comes from. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, no. So I, I've been listening as you might imagine, in particular, to a lot of your music uh, recently to, to get myself in, in the mood for, for this, uh, this conversation and trying to come to conclusion, my own personal conclusions about how I respond to your music. And I, I really love your music, I, I have to say. Um, and that's not just because you're sitting at the other end of this interview. It really is wonderful stuff. And I encourage anybody who's listening to this and, and not already familiar with your work to to have a, a really um, detailed listen. But you write very brilliant and thrilling fast music, I find. I mean, really exciting stuff. And the question I want to pose through that is that, do you think that a composer's particular body chemistry or mindset or disposition or whatever uh, lends them to the ability to, to write certain styles of music better than others? Um, I, I don't know what the, the answer to that question is. I, I, I recognise your comment about fast music. But I think it comes out of an anxiety that I've always had, 
that um, the, the styles and the language of modern music uh, is not naturally suited to fast music. The whole question of harmonic pace and harmonic uh, rhythm uh, is all up in the air uh, or has been throughout the 20th century. And you could say that there's something about a slow-paced, almost apocalyptic uh, music that's that's very... Um, uh, more that's more suited to uh, the modern composer than fast music, until perhaps John Adams come, come along, and I just wonder whether it's it's this anxiety and a, an attempt to uh, challenge myself uh, to, into the the issue of fast music. Is it possible to write fast music uh, now when the, the the concept of harmonic language and harmonic rhythm has changed so drastically in our time um, and there are various different ways to do that but th there are always questions is it music is fast is it fast music that actually moves and travels or is it fast music that simply jumps on the spot or dances on the spot there, there's different kinds of fast that's music. brilliant that's brilliant i hadn't thought of that i mean so it could be it could be harmonically static but rhythmically very energetic and yeah i'm seeing that already in in just thinking of a lot of other music that's uh, yeah out there I like that minimalism does that it's fast music but it's it's very static at the same time and which is great i mean i, I love uh, the best of that that steve reich and uh and many others uh but again the challenge is can you make can you write fast music that actually travels in time that's the big big thing that I, I, I try to force myself into. Wow, that's that's a tremendous answer. I love that. Now, as well as composing and conducting, you you run a festival, don't you, in Scotland? That's right. Uh, about seven years ago, I set up a, a little festival in my old hometown of Cumnock in, in East Ayrshire. It's called the Cumnock Trist or Trist. Uh, Trist is a strange word, and I've, I've used it for in some of my titles. Some people pronounce it Trist, people in Ayrshire, for example, but I hear a lot of people wanting to say Trist. There's no wrong or right way of, of um, pronouncing it. But it's a, a wonderful festival, I think, that's um, established itself very well. Our patron is Nicola Benedetti, mm -hmm. uh, who's a wonderful violinist and an Ayrshire lass. She, she comes from this part of Ayrshire. Um, and she's played a few times. We've had the 16 on a number of occasions. We're getting Tenebrae very soon. Um, we've had the choir of Westminster Cathedral, Scottish Chamber Orchestra. A new hall has been built in the area that allows us to bring larger ensembles. It's, it's become a kind of labour of love for me. And I suppose my models were those other composer-led festivals that were set up, first of all, by Benjamin Britten in the 1940s at Aldborough, and then by Peter Maxwell Davis, who was a great mentor of mine, who set up the St Magnus Festival in the, in the Orkney Islands in the 1970s. Uh, and I always wondered whether I'd do something similar myself, and now I have. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it, planning it, uh, talking to my chief executive and, and so on, and uh, we've got some great plans for this year when music finally comes back. And when does it normally take place? It's always been at the very end of September or at the beginning of October uh, for about three or four days. But we're expanding our, our um, aspirations in that we're now going to have events throughout the year. So isolated concerts oh, wow. in November, March and so on. And uh, so we can, we can bring ensembles and, and, and solos any time of the year, to be honest. 
And if any of your listeners, especially our American friends, are wanting to visit Ayrshire, keep us in mind, especially in, in the fall, uh, late September, early uh, October. And some of our great greatest friends and supporters are Americans. Oh, come on then. Let's finish the plug. What's the website for the festival? The website is www.thecumnocktrist.com. Please check us out. Yeah, you got to do a bit of spelling there. Cumnock, how is that spelled? Right. Cumnock is C-U-M-N-O-C-K, C-U-M-N-O-C-K, Trist, T-R-Y-S-T. Brilliant. Got it. So is everybody else now. Great stuff, James. If you had your time over again, what would you have done if you hadn't been a composer or a musician? Well, I spend a lot of time in the company of writers. Uh, I do a bit of writing myself, not not creative writing, but I, I love writing about music, for example, uh, or the arts, um, uh, and the, sometimes the interface between music and the arts and theology, or even sometimes a bit more controversially, the interface between music, the arts, and politics or society. Uh, there's there's a lot to be talked about there, and perhaps I would have found my way into writing of some sort or another, maybe even journalism. Hadn't expected that. Um, And a last question to this wonderful interview, if you don't mind. Uh, What is the one thing in your life that you're most proud of? I would have to say it's uh, my... What, what I've built here with my wife and my family. Uh, I married Lynn, uh, my wife, 38 years ago. We went to the same school, high school in Cumnock uh, in Ayrshire. And so I've known her since we were about, well, we've been a couple since we were 17. Uh, and I think I met her when I was about 14. Um, and we have three children, um, uh, all, all of whom I'm very proud of, and a little granddaughter. So I'm proud of all that. Great stuff. James, this has been a fabulous chat. I want to thank you very much for being my guest on A Stick With A Point. You're very welcome. The wonderful James Macmillan, a truly great composer. Now, if you've ever wondered how some of the world's major music competitions are not only put together, but brought to a sparkling, meaningful and successful conclusion, then my next podcast is just for you. Jessica Brennan is a music project director with over 25 years of experience, including such competitions as the BBC Young Musician of the Year, the fabulous Donatella Flick LSO Conducting Competition, and also the Menuhin Competition. I'm sure she'll have some stories to tell. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point.